Today on Peace Talks Radio, a Japanese man who at the age of five survived the atomic blast at Hiroshima that forced the surrender of Japan in World War II. Many Japanese think bombing is useless. Not, not necessary. Not necessary. Also from World War II, the courageous yet simply compelling story told by the late Meep Geese, who hid Anne Frank and her family from the Nazis and preserved her diary, the diary of Anne Frank. They would silently look up to me. Except for Anne, who, in a cheerful tone, used to say, Hello, me, and what is the news? And just how much does the U.S. spend on foreign aid to developing countries in need? They often say, Oh, it, it, you know, it is 15 or 20 percent. It probably should be 5 or 10 percent. And in fact, it's, it's currently at around 1 percent. We'll hear more from Jamie Drummond, who works that issue with Bono from the rock band U2. That's all today on Peace Talks Radio the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or how we reduce conflict between ourselves and others, at home, in the workplace, at school, in our neighborhoods, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. We also profile the great peacemakers, doing the work today or throughout history. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Today, a conversation with one of the leading voices promoting foreign assistance to struggling or developing countries, Jamie Drummond, who with Bono of the rock band U2 formed ONE, the campaigning and advocacy organization out to end extreme poverty and preventable disease, particularly in Africa. But first, a couple of stories from the two theaters of World War II, Later, we'll hear remarks from the late Meep Geese, who was among those who helped hide the family of Anne Frank from the Nazis, and who also helped preserve Anne Frank's now-famous diary. But first, in 2013, I was offered a chance to interview a Japanese man named So Hadie, who had come to New Mexico on a mission to advocate for the abolition of nuclear weapons and warn of the dangers of nuclear power plants. Hadie was a five-year-old boy living in Hiroshima, Japan, August 6, 1945, when an American bombing unit dropped the first of two atomic bombs in a bid to force Japan's surrender in World War II. Shortly after the second atomic blast over Nagasaki three days later, Japan did surrender. Estimates of deaths from the blasts have ranged from 150,000 to 250,000. I certainly wanted to hear what Mr. Hadier had to say about surviving that experience and his message today. But as the interview approached, I also knew that some part of me would want to apologize to him. I also knew that if I tried, I didn't believe I could finish the apology without choking up. That's just the way I am. You should see me try to even make a toast to someone I really care about at a gathering of friends or a family reunion. My emotion overtakes my ability to speak usually. Having this conversation with Mr. Hadier is complicated for me. My father was an Army First Lieutenant who fought toward the end of World War II in Europe. He was at the Battle of the Bulge. He'd been awarded the Purple Heart. After VE Day in May of 1945 in Europe, my father's unit and many others could have been deployed to the South Pacific. But the atomic bomb blasts, followed by Japan's surrender, eliminated the need to bolster troop strength there. I know that my dad and many others of his generation believed the rationale that the bomb drops eliminated a protracted engagement in the South Pacific and on the Japanese mainland, during which some believe many more would have died. 
Still, it was going to be challenging for me to face a man who, as a mere five-year-old, had to endure the atomic terror, lose his father and many other friends and family and tens of thousands of innocents in such a horrific way. I didn't expect to be able to pass on the opportunity to ask Mr. Hadier what he feels or says when Americans express their remorse to him. And I didn't expect I'd pass on the opportunity to reveal my own sadness and regret to him. So Hadier is almost 73 years old when we sit down to talk in the fall of 2013. He looks healthy enough sitting in our studio in Albuquerque, but he says that in 2010 he was diagnosed with a blood cancer and expects this to be his last trip to the United States to tell his story of surviving the atomic bombing of Hiroshima the morning of August 6, 1945. He primarily speaks through translator Shaw Fuji, but Hadier also prepared an English script that he reads a little bit from. He says he was walking through his Hiroshima neighborhood with his sister that morning, he was just five years old, and they were just a little more than three miles from the center of the blast. Very, very big sound. Yes. His sister shielded him from the force, and they both survived. His detailed memories are few but vivid of returning to their badly damaged home and his mother caring for victims whose skin was blown off by the firestorm. I remember uh, many badly burned people with hand hanging down come to our house seeking shelter. Soon that at our house, was filled with serious injured people. One was a junior high school student. He was burned all over his face, and his nostrils were clogged by peeled skin. My mother removed the skin out of his nostrils with tweezers. It looked very painful. He must have worn a cap. His hair remained only in the part of covered by the cap. Hadier's written account goes on to tell of his father, who was a Navy officer and was exposed to the A-bomb in an office near the center of the blast. He died six days later. A few days afterwards, Hadier recalls that two soldiers carried a white urn to their house and that his mother broke down after the two soldiers saluted and left. At that time, he did not know what had happened to his father. Because I was only five, five years old at that time. Yes. So Hadier says he was 10 or 11 when he began to hear enough about the how and why of the bombing to begin to understand what it was all about and the politics that may have led to it. As an American not born at that time myself, mm-hmm. I try to imagine what it would be like to be you, to grow up having lived through that and how I would feel about the world how I would feel about Americans as a young man, as an adult. Did you grow up being angry with Americans because of the blast and this history? I don't feel so strong anger so much. However, we Japanese knew that bombing, atomic bombing to Hiroshima and Nagasaki is on just, you know, uh, threw it to Japanese into the end of the war but also a uh, st- strategy to the, of uh, Russia. Right. So his, the historians that have said that one of the reasons for the bomb was as much to show the Russians that Americans had the bomb 
many political reasons. Many people who go through trauma have nightmares, um, very strong feelings. Have you had to do anything uh, internally to deal with the emotions? I don't feel so much, you know, I don't suffer so much, but many Japanese think bombing is useless. Not necessary. Not necessary. Not necessary, yeah. right. Military scholars debate whether the use of the bomb was necessary. They claim that many more Japanese, many more Allied forces may have died in a protracted invasion. Uh, how do you feel about that discussion, that argument? Well, I think that that discussion is quite wrong, you know, because the Japanese uh, military government asked the United government to uh, mediate, you know, to make a treaty with Russia. American government could recognize what what teller what the power of nuclear power of the atomic bombing in experimental stage in Los Alamos. Therefore, so no dropping a bomb uh, lost you know two people, precious lives of Hiroshima Nagasaki. Within ten years after the bomb, a Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park was built. Mm-hmm along with a uh, Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum. Mm-hmm. Hiroshima was proclaimed a city of peace mm-hmm. by the Japanese parliament in 1949. And Hiroshima became something of a location for international conferences on peace as mm-hmm. well as social issues. Yes. Right. And how do you feel about that? Is that a good thing? Oh, of course, of course. Mm-hmm. What do you most want to say to Americans that feel badly about the use of the bombs? I want to tell of the nuclear atomic bombings and tell of the threat of nuclear reactors. They are, should be abolished you know, as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to say, be aware of the dangers of nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Be aware of the dangers of nuclear power. But do you cross over to any level of forgiveness, sympathy, empathy with Americans who feel mm. conflicted, upset, sad? Do you say anything that addresses how they feel about what happened? I don't say special. I don't say anything. I don't know. Yeah, to them. Um, my father fought in Europe during World War II. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he is one of the Americans who still believe that it was necessary to use the bomb to avoid mm-hmm. more killing. I'm wondering if, in your travels, if if there's anything special that you say to them. I like to say, tell, tell them that, you know, come over to Hiroshima to look at what happened to Hiroshima in 1945 with his, their own eyes and their mind, their heart. And do some veterans of World War II do that? Have you hosted veterans of World War II? And have you met them there and to talk with them about what you just described? Fortunately, we don't have... So that's a, 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 a veteran's soldier 
happened to when come to Hiroshima, stay there at the World Center. I talk to them. I I will very happy to guide them on the museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so some do come to have that experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, speaking personally, just for me, I'm I'm sorry for the pain that this event caused. You and your countrymen. はい、ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。ありがとうございます。
Meepgeese found Anne Frank's diary scattered on the floor of their hiding place. She saved it, and in 1945 presented it to Anne's father, Otto Frank, who had managed to survive the Nazi concentration camp at Auschwitz. Anne Frank herself did not survive her time in another concentration camp, where she died. The diary was published first in 1950. In a talk recorded in Albuquerque, New Mexico by radio station KUNM and producer Audrey Hona in the mid-1990s, Meep Geese, in her 80s then, recalled her time knowing Anne Frank. For me, the best thing is to meet people who share my views about our human duty to help those who are in trouble. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not look up to me. It does embarrass me very much. Kindly consider yourself to be my equal in providing support to all who live in fear and pain. People often ask why I found the courage to help the Franks. Yes, it certainly requires some courage some discipline, and also some sacrifice to do your human duty. But that is true for so many things in life. Therefore, this question always surprises me, because I simply could not think of doing any else. So why this question? Step by step, I started to understand that many people wonder why they should assist people who are in trouble. Because when we are young, we are told by our parents that if we behave all right, everything in life will work out fine for us. So, people who have a problem must have made a serious mistake. Why should we then help them? Those people should receive what they deserve. An important reason that I helped was because I do not believe that people who are in trouble have done something wrong. I knew that from my own life. I'm born an Austrian girl. I grew up in Vienna and lived through the First World War that started when I was five years old. My mother told me that I was a good girl at home and at school. However, I remember that at the age of nine, I did not get enough food. I still feel the pain of being hungry. I also remember the shock that I had to leave my home in Vienna, to go to Holland in order to recover from a tuberculosis. Did I deserve that? No. I was innocent. So, very young, 
I discovered that you can be in trouble without that you can be blamed for that. I felt the same to be true for the Jews. Many of you are parents and teachers. In my opinion, education is the best way to improve our world. Children should learn from us that people often do not get in life what they deserve. We should tell them that most victims of poverty and discrimination are innocent. We should also tell our children that they would always share with others and that caring about own business only did lead to the death of six million innocent Jews, among them and Frank. I feel very strongly that we should not wait for our leaders to make this world a better place. No, we should make this happen now in our own homes and in the schools. We should never forget the victims of the Holocaust. I myself always think of Edith Frank, her daughters Margot and Anne, the family van Daan with son Peter, and the dentist van Dussel. These were the names Anne gave them. The true names were Van Pels and Pfeffer. Also, the helpers got other names from Anne, except for me. Why did she decide to use my own name? The answer I will never receive, but it touches me very much. It gave me the feeling that she felt too close with me to alter my name. Including Jan, my husband, we were a total of five helpers. Each had an own task. In the morning I had, as first one, to enter the hiding place in order to pick up the shopping list. When I came in, nobody would speak, just standing in line and had waiting for me to begin. An awful moment for me, because it reflected that dependence on us, the helpers. They would silently look up to me, except for Anne, who in a cheerful tone used to say, hello, Mip, and what is the news? Her mother disliked this very strongly, and I knew that the other people in hiding would afterwards blame Otto and Edith Frank for what they would call proof of a too liberal education. <laughs> yes. What me struck most about Anne was her curiosity. She asked me always about everything that went on outside. 
and was also an extremely charming girl. I say girl, but talking to her gave the surprising impression of speaking to a much older person. No wonder, because the special condition in the hiding place make her change very quickly from a child to a young adult. I did not pay much attention to this because there were all the other things, like the danger, and my daily care for 11 people, me and my husband, eight in the attic, and also a student, no Jew, but wanted by the Germans, and who we were hiding in our home. Otto Frank did not know about this student. He could have forbidden it. You take too much risk, Meep. It is too dangerous for you and for us. But I did it without any objection. Especially for the children in hiding. It was a hard situation. They missed so much. They could not play. They could hardly move. We helpers did what was possible, but freedom we could not give them. That was one of the most painful things for us. You're listening to Meep Geese, author of Anne Frank Remembered. She was recorded in Albuquerque in 1995. Every year on the 4th of August, I close the curtains of my home and do not answer the doorbell and the telephone. It is the day that my dear friends, my Jewish friends, were taken away. I have never overcome that shock. I loved and admired them so much. Two years they had to live with eight people in a small place. They had little food and we were not allowed to go out. They could not speak to their friends and family. On the top of that came the fear. Every hour of the day. I have no word to describe these people who were still always friendly and grateful. Yes, I do have a word. Heroes, true heroes there were. People sometimes call me a hero. I don't like this because people should never think that you have to be a very special person to help those who need you. I myself am just a very ordinary woman. I simply had no choice. I could foresee many, many sleepless nights and a miserable life if I had refused to help the Franks. Yes, I have wept countless times when I think of my dear friends 
But still, I'm happy that those are not tears of remorse for refusing to assist those who were in trouble. Even if help might fail, it is better to try than to do nothing. I'm grateful that I could save Anne's diary. When I found it scattered all over the floor, I decided to stow it away in order to give it back to Anne when she would return. I wanted to see her smile and hear her say, oh, me, my diary. But after a terrible time of waiting and hoping, came that Anne had died. At that moment, I went to Otto Frank, Anne's father, the only one of the family who had survived, and gave him Anne's diary. This is what Anne has left, I said to him. These are her words. Can you see how this man looked at me? Lost his wife, lost his two children. He had Anne's diary. It was a very moving moment. Otto urged me to read the diary. In the beginning, I refused because I was afraid. I had not the courage. Then it would give me more pain. But when I finally started to read it, all my dear friends came back to life. I heard their voices, their laughs, their arguments. It was really wonderful. Of course, I wept a lot while reading, but basically I felt happy. Anne and all the other people were with me again. Thank you, Anne. I said often to myself, you gave me one of the finest things life ever gave me. For a long time, I was deeply ashamed of my home country. My biggest joy was on the day that I became a Dutch citizen. Then I felt free to hate all Germans and Austrians <laughs> because of what they had done to my Jewish friends. I could not see to be anything wrong with that. But one day, fate caught me. When I suddenly discovered that I faced Germans, I jumped at them, calling them everything I couldn't think of. I was furious. The visitors were clearly afraid and backed off to the ball. Yes. I also saw that their wives were taking position in front of their husbands, trying to protect them from my violent outburst. I really had my go at them. But then I was told 
that these German people had been many years in concentration camps themselves for opposing Hitler. I did not know where to look and how to make good it. At that moment, I began to understand the wisdom of Otto Frank, who always said that we should never lump people together. We all make our own personal decision, Otto said. Even parents and their children do not act all the same. We should not make the same mistake millions of Germans once made. Hitler had a movie shown of a very selfish Jews. As a result, most Germans believe that all Jews were that way. And so Hitler got the help he needed to kill six million innocent Jews. Therefore, Otti insisted that we should stop talking about the Jews, the Germans, the Arabs, the Asians, or whatever. Lumping people together is racism, Otto said. It did lead to the Holocaust and still destroys countless lives today, like, for instance, in Bosnia and many other places. Ladies and gentlemen, I thank you with all my heart for spending your time with me. Once again, thank you all. It was really wonderful. Thank you. Meep Geese, recorded in Albuquerque, New Mexico in the mid-1990s. She's the woman who discovered Anne Frank's diary and preserved it so it could eventually be published. Meep Geese died in 2010 at the age of 100. Thanks to radio station KUNM for the recording. A conversation with Jamie Drummond of the One Campaign for Foreign Aid to Africa is coming up when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online with all of our episodes dating back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and next up, we're going to hear from Jamie Drummond, 
who, with Bono of the rock group U2, formed ONE, the campaigning and advocacy organization out to end extreme poverty and preventable disease, particularly in Africa. One has been instrumental in getting support from U.S. leaders in other countries to provide support for AIDS programs in Africa, anti-malaria programs, debt relief, and other programs to support African growth and opportunity. During the September 2013 Bill Clinton Global Initiative Gathering in New York, we reached Jamie Drummond by telephone. Thank you. Great honor to be here. One of one's major goals, I know, is to keep the world's hearts and purse strings open to help in Africa and other impoverished countries. There's still a lingering misconception about how much foreign assistance is offered from richer nations of the world to the poor, is there not? There is, yeah. There's, if you uh, go to the great American public or or European, for example, and you ask them how much the government gives in aid, they'll often say 15 or 20% of the budget. In fact, it's uh, more like 1%. So, so when you ask people, you know, what do you think it should be, not what they uh, what what it should be, they often say, oh, it, it, you know, it is 15 or 20%. It probably should be 5 or 10%. And in fact, it's it's currently at around 1%. So, you know, uh, there's, a, there's certain information that needs to be better understood in, in the general public. Uh, secondly, the most important thing, however, is not the levels of aid. It is how effective it is. And a lot of aid these days is highly effective, much more so than it used to be, especially with the advent of um, mobile telephony. It's helping tar- target uh, aid much more effectively in the past, even into more sensitive and fragile regions. Right. I, I was doing some research for this, and... Reading well, actually, I googled the words uh, "the case against aid," <laughs> and for the most part, most of the articles were written about 15 years ago. There was an op-ed in the Christian Science Monitor and, and and other papers, and most of the time, you know, they were making the argument that the foreign aid doesn't get to where it needs to get, and that corruption is a huge problem. Now, I just watched. Uh, as we're taping this, the global initiative, the Clinton Global Initiative is going on, and I just watched your colleague Bono, you know, making the case again for anti-corruption legislation and, and, and support. Mr. President, can I just come in on this one? I, I, what actually Mo is talking about is very, very real, and very real to the months that we're in right now, because the United States, up until this July, was leading in this fight against corruption. As we know, corruption is killing more kids than TB, AIDS, malaria put together. There is a vaccine, it's called transparency, open data sets where we can actually follow the money, find the money and follow the money. And this is, uh, was, was, went through Congress here of the United States, the SEC passed it. The American Petroleum Institute has stopped it in its tracks, or at least tried to this July by suing the SEC. This is an extraordinary event. And when you say people in this room, I happen to know Exxon are doing an incredible job on malaria. I applaud them. We need corporations. I'm no cranky anti-corporate critic here. But Exxon, in some people's eyes, is the American Petroleum Institute. And I would ask you to think very, very seriously about blocking this because Europe has now passed this transparency regulation. You have uh, the French, the English, and now on the EU level. It is a wave, it's a tidal wave, it's a transparency revolution. People want to know what their tax are actually achieving and they want to know where it's going. They want to know also how much, this is the simple core of it because 
these countries that Mo refers to, his countries, the countries of Africa, are extremely rich in resource. So why are they poor? They are because largely these extractive industries uh, are not returning the wealth to the people uh, in any kind of fair measure. This is how it works. Let me explain how it works. The Publish What You Pay Coalition is just looking for, to make it law, and, this, and, it, and it is law here in the United States, that if you pay for an oil or mining contract in the developing world, you just have to publish what you paid for that. Now, why is that important? That's important because civil societies all across those developing worlds can then see how much their governments were paid and hold their governments to account. That is what the API has blocked this July. This is going on right now. And, you know, we talk about public-private partnerships, but this is it. This is the one I implore the people in this room from Exxon, from Chevron, who are doing great jobs for the Global Fund. You can't have it both ways. You can't give alms to the poor on one level and have your, 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 your hands on their throat on another. And it's very, very serious. And activists, activists all across the continent of America, African activists are being thrown in prison for this stuff. It's really serious. And I just think it's a, if this isn't the forum, Mr. President, this, this is what I presume you formed the Clinton Global Initiative for. So I just want to put that out there. This is real. It's going on live. And I implore the people of Exxon and Chevron to use their influence right now on the American Petroleum Institute and get on the right side of history and not have the red face of history uh, later. Thank you. Yeah. So it's still a problem, but is it less of a problem noticeably than it was 15, 20 years ago? Well, this is slightly different from the issue of aid. Um, what he was referring to there was a much wider issue than potential corruption in the, in the aid sector. It was about corruption in the much bigger oil and gas sector in this case. Um, uh, so what happens at the moment is large uh, multinational corporations and local companies um, compete with each other for contracts in resource-rich but governance and economically poor countries, particularly in places like Africa, where a lot of oil and gas is being discovered at the moment. And so the tendency toward corrupt payments um, to win the contracts is, is extremely tempting. Um, and the purpose of the legislation Bono and One and the Publish What You Pay Coalition were part of have campaigned for is to make sure all payments from these companies to governments are made public on a case-by-case, project-by-project basis with no exemptions. Most of the industry and most investors and most of the private sector support this. It's not an anti-corporate move. It's, it's just anti-corruption. But there's a few holdouts in the American Petroleum Institute who, who don't like this approach. And we're having uh, a disagreement with them at the moment, which Bono was referring to. Mm -hmm. But corruption then, more broadly, outside of this specific example that you gave, are steps being taken? Because it's, isn't it still the, the most common argument against increasing aid from world governments? Not really. No, no, no. I, I mean, I think you could, you could say that aid is required to fight corruption. You know, some kinds of aid are highly effective in the fight against corruption. So, for example, aid to support whistleblowers, aid to strengthen public financial management systems, and so on. 
and also aid directed and targeted through, say, for example, mobile phones, are highly effective ways of both targeting aid but also using aid to fight corruption. So I don't think the corruption argument is, is at all a good one as to why aid should not be given. Um, and, and corruption needs to be isolated as its own issue. And we need to tackle it directly for what it is and wherever it is. And usually it's about strengthening legislation and strengthening the the, the the organs of government that enforce anti-corruption legislation and strengthening the arms of civil society so that they can keep government accountable for enforcing anti-corruption legislation. And obviously this is harder in non-democratic countries, you know, whereas in some places it's a matter of people protesting and organizing and campaigning to get progress. You know, in less democratic countries, you can be thrown in prison or worse. So, you know, it's a continuum depending upon on where. You, you know, re regarding, you know, uh, uh, the issue of peace, one, you know, particularly fragile areas are where, um, you know, you see these things called the three extremes, extreme poverty, extreme climate, and extreme ideology, if you like, interweave in places like the Sahel, you know, the southern belt of the Sahara in Africa. And... Um, that's an area where there is also resource discoveries, oil and gas occurring. And you could see, you know, on the one hand, this could be a great opportunity for them if they manage sensibly these resources, or it could be a great opportunity for corruption to fester and for uh, the wrong kind of people to take control using the proceeds of oil. And so that's why this legislation is so important. What are best practices examples of places where uh, you know, aid and transparency and, and everything has sort of fallen together that you used to point to when you're making this case either to the general public or to uh, governments? Well, you know, I was just in Ghana, where you see a lot of things in the balance. You know, they're really making an effort to fight corruption, um, even as they're discovering oil and gas. Um, and Ghana's, in the last few decades, been a real success story, but still got a long way to go. Um, and, uh, you know, so countries like Ghana are trying to turn the corner. Botswana is a famous case, one of the world's most successful economies in the last three or four decades, um, used its proceeds of diamonds, diamond mines, um, extremely efficiently and transparently and, uh, and have, have largely eradicated poverty in that country as a result. So you, you've got some good examples of where transparent and accountable governance of natural resource wealth has resulted in domestic money sufficient to end extreme poverty in those countries. And that's increasingly where we're applying ourselves. Meanwhile, we still need aid targeted to those countries and those specific issues like AIDS, TB, and malaria, where the uh, domestic money is not yet enough to solve the problem. Um, so this is the fight we're in right now. And it'd be great if your listeners uh, could join one and join this campaign to impose greater openness on the oil and gas sector and also demand that so-called phantom firms are the ownership of phantom firms is made public. Phantom firms are this, you know, network and global ecosystem of companies which are opaque in their governance structure, which aid and abet illicit flight of capital proceeds from, you know, drug trafficking, sex trafficking, and, you know, grand larceny, corruption at, uh, at the highest levels. Um, and uh, so making sure we can clearly identify who owns these companies and offshore financial centers and tax havens 
um, so that you can trace the money, you can follow the money and try and stop it in its tracks from escaping. Well, is the path to that advocacy through um, U.S. legislation? That is one route. Um, we are working on uh, route uh, legislative options in Europe. There's an anti-money laundering directive in Europe that we're part of. So there's, um, there's a lot of legislation uh, that we're putting through at the moment. There's strong bipartisan support for this. Um, and, uh, you know, we're optimistic that we can get this through, but it'll be a long slog, and the support of your listeners would be great. What is the argument for increasing aid that appeals, you think, most to the head and the practical side of Americans? It's, it's, I, I feel like my faith in Americans and, and people of the world, frankly, is, is that their hearts can open up quickly. But then, like when I watch some of the one videos, they go out and they do interviews with people. The first time they ask about aid, they say, well, no, I think we have enough problems here in our own country. We shouldn't be giving aid out to other countries. Then they hear how little it is, and they kind of open up a little bit. But I think they still want to hear more about how uh, opening up their purse strings means that uh, life is somehow more peaceful on their side of the ocean or in their country. Um, Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, um, you know, I think the best argument always in the long run is a combination of it's the right thing to do and appeal to immediate people's values of wanting to help another human who's hurting. But at the same time, do that in a way that makes the most sense in the long run, which means get rid of the structural causes of extreme poverty that people find themselves in. So on the one hand, you, you, you will need to give aid in the immediate and short and medium term. But in the long run, you want to stop the causes of extreme poverty. And often that is about developing markets, access to markets, ensuring rule of law, getting the basic infrastructure of government in place and holding it accountable with the free media and elections. And those institutions are what's required. And America, if it's supporting the development of those institutions, will be, you know, helping catalyze that long-term solution. I'm not talking about nation-building here. That is the job of these countries, and each one is going to do it uniquely in their own sort of specific historical and cultural circumstances. But there are things we can do to be relatively more helpful to them in this in this evolution and in this process. Certainly we, what we should do is, is not hurt by, you know, fostering um, networks of, of companies that, help people steal money from these countries. Um, And hopefully we can help rather than not hurt um, by smart, intelligent policies and smart, intelligent aid. Because in the long run, you know, um, for example, Africa, the region, will be a major trading partner. It was already a growing trading partner, but it will be a major trading partner for the United States and Europe. And it is extremely in our interest, in our enlightened long-term interest, properly understood, that uh, Africa as a region be stable, prosperous, and a reliable trading partner for the international community. Has the history of some of these programs, though, been mired in not listening enough to what the locals need and want to do? Because I did, I watched the the panel with the Bono and President Clinton and Mo Ibrahim was on there who promotes good governance in sub-Saharan Africa. And in a, in a kind of a heated moment, I think he said, well, keep your aid money because it's causing more problems with corruption than it ever would if it never came. He, he sort of backed off that a little bit later, and much to the chagrin of President Clinton, who was moderating, I think. Uh, but um, th- th- this, is still, this is still a work in progress very much, isn't it? 
I would say that that view is something of, a, of an anachronism at this point. It was certainly true in the past, especially so of aid during the Cold War, when it really wasn't about helping these countries fight poverty. It was about helping the West uh, fight communism. Um, but since, you know, especially since 2000 and the advent of the Millennium Development Goals, which we work on, um, with Mo Ibrahim and President Clinton and many others, um, there's been a tremendous amount of progress. There's been a significant improvement in the quality of aid um, with incredible results. People on antiretrovirals, malaria bed nets, uh, vaccinations, saving tens of millions of lives with the support of the American taxpayer and people. Um, so there's been incredible progress and, and positive results. And I think that uh, there's, there's very many reasons to be optimistic that aid is smart, it is effective, it is sustainable. Um, and in fact, in the long run, it can do itself out of a job because it will help these economies and these people uh, end extreme poverty and with it end, uh, end the need for an aid relationship so we can enter a properly and fully a trade and investment uh, kind of relationship. That's what Mo wants and what, what we all want. Um, I, I, you know, but we know there's, there's always anecdotes of specific aid projects that were designed by very smart young people who didn't really understand the realities of, a, of this or that country. And, you know, you will still hear about those stories regularly. And it's not surprising it still sometimes happens, but increasingly it's weeded out. And those kind of practices are mainly in the past. Jamie, as we wrap up, could you talk a little bit about your personal motivation to move toward this work? Uh, what, what, what got you started in this direction, and then what keeps you in it? Um, it could be a long story. But um, I used to work in India with uh, uh, lower-caste um, uh, people in, in communities there in southern India who often suffered from issues like polio um, or, or really were bonded slave laborers in an essentially feudal system. So it could make you very angry. Uh, it did make me angry um, at that injustice. And uh, I guess I've kept that anger ever since, but, but fueled now increasingly by positive results. Polio, for example, which I worked on as a, a younger person, is now almost eradicated. Uh, antiretrovirals to fight HIV AIDS are much more widespread. I fought hard against uh, the debt crisis in the late 1990s, and we've cancelled most of the debts of the poorest countries. So my experience is that when people get organized and focused and uh, politically smart, you get results. And that is something that one, the organization I co-founded with Bono and others, is all about. Um, and increasingly, uh, we've got a strong network across the continent in Africa and around the world that is spreading this idea of evidence-based activism or factivism. And what keeps me motivated is not just the, the original fire at that injustice, but the knowledge that we can get results along the way that keeps it going. Mm -hmm. Well, Gandhi talked about turning the energy of anger into something positive, so it sounds like that's what you've done. Hopefully. <laughs> no, I, I think that's what we've done, and, and uh, there's many, many like me into a growing movement. From September of 2013, Jamie Drummond of the One Campaign for Foreign Aid to Africa. And here's his partner, Bono, with his band U2 from the year 2000 calling for peace on earth. Heaven on earth We need it now I'm sick of all of this Hanging around 
sick of sorrow sick of the pain sick of hearing again and again that there's gonna be peace on earth where I grew up there went many trees where there was we tear them down and use them on our enemies. They say that what you mark will surely overtake you, and you become a monster. So the monster will not break you. It's already gone too far You said that if you're going hard You won't get hurt Jesus, can you take the time To throw a drowning man a line Peace on earth Tell the ones who hear no sound Whose sons are living in the ground Peace on earth Know who's the wise, no one cries like a mother cries for peace on earth. She never got to say goodbye, to see the color in his eyes, now he's in the dirt. Peace on earth. Peace on earth. Peace on earth. For more about the work of Bono and Jamie Drummond and the One Campaign, and more about all of our guests on today's program, visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear this program again and all of the programs in our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution dating back to 2002. Also at the website, you can sign up for a free podcast and newsletter order CDs of many programs, and help support the series with a tax-deductible contribution to the nonprofit organization that produces this program separate and apart from your public radio station. Visit peacetalksradio.com to learn more. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, too. That helps the effort as well. In addition to support from listeners like you, we also get support from the Eric Oppenheimer Family Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Paul Ray Peace Prize, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves Moses is the executive director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.